Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about institutional critique and research. On this episode, I am joined by the architect, urbanist, and teacher Ippolito Pestellini Laparelli. Ippolito is the curator of the Russian Pavilion at the 2020 Venice Biennale, and earlier this year, he established his own studio, 2050 Plus, that operates at the intersection of technology, politics, the environment, and design. Before starting 2050 Plus, Ippo worked at OMA from 2007 to 2020 uh, and was a partner there since uh, 2014. Ippo and I begin this conversation talking about the ideas behind the Russian Pavilion. The 2020 Venice Biennale theme is how we live together. And I was curious how Ippo approached this theme and how it evolved now that it's become an entirely virtual pavilion, kind of rethinking what it means to live together. And so what they've done is they've created a really interesting fully online exhibition that features films and video games and podcasts and essays and projects. But the core ideas remain the same. He's still very interested in using this exhibition and using the Russian Pavilion as a form of institutional critique and then thinking about the structures of biennials themselves. We also talk about his time at OMA and how his work there and specifically with their research arm, AMMO, influenced his practice. I was really interested in the role of research in his work and how he moves between kind of various disciplines and various ideas. It's a really fun conversation, one that I think really starts to get into these ideas of blending the theoretical with the commercial and kind of those sometimes competing desires within one practice. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Remember that Scratching the Surface is made possible because of listeners like you. If you enjoy this show and want to help support it and see it continue, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that is written by me uh, and includes previews of the upcoming episodes, bonus content, exclusive interviews, and all sorts of other kind of interesting links and ideas. If you like Scratching the Surface, if you want to see it continue, please be, please consider becoming a supporting member. It truly means so much to me, and it really helps keep the podcast going. For all the details, you can visit scratchingthesurface.fm slash members. Thank you for listening, and here is my conversation with Ippolito Pestolini-Laparelli. The theme of this year's Venice Biennale is how we live together, which uh, since that was announced and the world that we live in now, I feel like that theme has taken on new meaning. Mm. And I'm interested in when you were appointed curator of the Russian Pavilion, how you initially interpreted that theme, how we live together, and how that has changed for you now that the the entire Biennale has been postponed and you've moved the Russian pavilion online. How has your thinking around this theme and this topic changed? Mm. Well, I mean, um, the project that we initiated before the whole pandemia basically blocked us was actually a reflection on the institution of the Alpha National Pavilion itself. So um, this was for Russia a year of transition, the first time with a new commissioner, the first time with uh, basically a new institutional setup uh, um, taking care of the pavilion, of the appointment of the curators, of the artists, and so on. So 
it became really a reflection on the pavilion as a sort of temporary institution. And we took it like that. Actually, um, the project had at the beginning two sides. One, an actual reconstruction of the architecture, which is quite damaged. And on the other side, an actual reconstruction of the institution itself. And when we were kind of investigating this topic, we thought, okay, I mean, the point is that the biennial um, as an international cultural event through the years has become uh, a stage for, let's say, market-oriented dynamics. So basically dominated by the gallery system in the case of the Biennial of Art and dominated by a certain you know, amount of resources that some countries have as opposed to others. Most importantly, the Biennial has lost its connection to um, not just the international audience, but the city of Venice itself. In the 1970s, when Vittorio Gregotti was the head of the visual arts department, the discussion around the Biennial were completely osmotic or in symbiosis, so to say, with the discussion about the future of Venice. So the Biennial was a way to initiate a cultural platform of exchange that would also reflect not just in terms of artistic content and speculation, but also on the place where the venue was actually sitting. Um, and this has been lost through, through time in a way. And our reflection started from this idea of how to basically turn the pavilion from an empty shell that is filled every two years with new content into something basically that could have a longer time plan, so beyond the horizon of the two-year cycle, um, starting from a reconstruction really of the institution of the pavilion, so imagining really how it could work in terms of mechanics, how to turn it into something that would not just host an exhibition, but a sort of work in progress. And in, in the case of our project at the beginning was actually um, supposed to really stage the reconstruction, the physical reconstruction of the pavilion with a very intense public program that would reflect on the condition of cultural institutions in times of global crisis. So mm. that was the core. And then obviously mm. the pandemic happened. Um, right. And we were kind of stuck and we could not do any longer uh, the actual physical reconstruction. The venue was postponed and we went through weeks of crisis, so to say. At one point, <laughs> yeah. at one point we said, okay, but I mean, you know, like what we are experiencing is not really social distancing, but rather physical distancing. Right. The whole narrative right. about, you know, social distancing is, is it's strange because in a way we sort of transferred or migrated online, at least some of us, right. to maintain our social relationship as, as intact as possible, so to say. So we, we decided at one point to basically take the whole project online, not really... Um, with the intention to fall into this, in the, into this kind of obsession for online events and so on, but really to test, you know, like to test a kind of a different curatorial format, um, to test a different kind of environment, and to unpack what was supposed to be an exhibition, a public and a public program into a sort of editorial and research platform. So, um, in a way, what happened is that. Now the project is ongoing. There is a program of events and content that is deployed on the platform every week. We don't have deliberately live events, uh, not to fall into this kind of bu streaming bulimia, which was really yeah. intense at the beginning of the lockdown. Yeah. 
And for us, I mean, uh, uh, paradoxically, the fact that we migrated online allowed the project to be ma- to be much more elastic, and we could involve mm-hmm. more components, more people, more voices. So it became really a sort of you know temporary platform for exchange. And um, I don't know whether it's really successful or not, but I think it really benefited the project to build a kind of stronger foundation simply by having more time and by being able to involve more people. So it became even more inclusive than what we had originally planned if the binary would have happened in May 2020. Right. I mean, it's interesting, too, because the original the original kind of plan or the original uh, kind of programming that you're talking about was so space specific. Absolutely. Uh, it, it was taking place at the pavilion. It was rethinking the pavilion. It was about the pavilion in a way. It was this kind of meta, yeah, yeah. Uh, totally. meta project. And now without that space, it's interesting to think about without the physical space, it's interesting to think about how do you take those ideas and move them online and make it uh, still, I, I don't know the word I'm the word I'm wanting to use is relevant, but that's not really what I mean. Um, for someone like myself who has never been to Russia and would not have seen the pavilion uh, that I can encounter it and still kind of uh, think about the ideas that you're thinking about. Mm. Um, How did you think about translating these ideas that were so space-specific to something that was now uh, decidedly not physical, Mm. if that makes sense? Yeah, no, um, of course, it's a very interesting and and, and crucial question. I mean, maybe going a, a couple of steps back, uh, for us, and that's also part of my appointment as curator, the issue of national identity was not mm-hmm. really central. I mean, not as central mm-hmm. maybe as in previous editions. A pavilion mm-hmm. basically stages a process and content and certain questions, which are, in this case specifically, relevant for the country. The question of institutions, it's definitely relevant in the Russian context. Um, but also relevant in general. For us, the point was to basically to start from, you know, the redefinition of the institution of the pavilion as a way to discuss institutions in general. Now, the translation, the translation basically on the online platform uh, produced two shifts. First, um, the architectural project had to be told or narrated in a different way. So we have regular dispatches coming from the designers which won the open call um, uh, back in November. Mm-hmm. But then what became really central was the public program and all the projects associated to this public program, which were supposed to populate the physical institution in, uh, in, in the original right. plan. And those were able to be translated into a sort of editorial format. So for example, um, we decided not to create a platform that would be too complicated in terms of design, no three-dimensional. <laughs> so space in itself, in its original configuration, only appears in a video game that we released a couple of weeks back. That's the only moment where you actually experience space as such. You experience it through the medium of a video game because video games are incredibly powerful social gathering environments. 
maybe mm. not for my generation, but definitely for the generation coming after me, um, before me, sorry. Um, all the contributions related to these questions of institutions, we simply unpack those through a longer period of time. So it's like taking an exhibition and transforming it into a calendar of events, um, where the only, let's say, um, three-dimensional surrogate of the pavilion is in a video game, which reflects right. obviously on our presence online and our presence in uh, digital activities. And the rest has turned into a quasi-magazine of sorts, to, right. to, so, so to say. Um, from a curatorial perspective, I think that obviously, you know, nothing can replace physical experience and nothing can replace the fact that we can meet with our bodies in, in, in an architectural project or in, 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 in inside architecture. But at the same time, I think the shift online made clear these questions about the present and future of institutions because we could give to this question more space through the screening program, through the voices program, which is a series of contribution of people talking about this, um, and through the two games which we have released on the platform. So, uh, of course, the experience is different, but to me, it was a way to actually uh, let this question grow and let this question grow into other formats. I find this so interesting, and this perhaps is just, I'm, I might just be asking the same question in, in a different way. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not totally sure. Um, but I find this idea that institutional critique or kind of critique of these systems can be and is an architectural project. Absolutely. And you've talked about before in other interviews talking about, about the pavilion and about your work generally about architecture and architects being kind of mediators of space. And I, I would love to hear more about how you think about this as a architecture project specifically, that, that architecture can play a role in this kind of institutional critique. Abandoning the, let's say, not necessarily, not necessarily about the online platform, so more in general. Yeah, yeah, and or, I mean, kind both. of how you were or thinking both. of, yeah, 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 both. I mean, yeah. I think, I mean, my, I, I, I guess I'll just kind of show you my cards <laughs> here in, in asking that question. I'm very interested in the expanding definitions of architecture and the expanding definitions of design, and, and mm -hmm. me coming from a graphic design, how how these terms are much more elastic than we sometimes give them mm -hmm. credit, uh, and so I'm. I agree with you that institutional critique, both in a physical environment and online, can be and is an architecture project. Uh, and I'm interested in how you think about that and how you think about the role of architecture, whether that's physical or or online. Mm. Well, I mean, um, I think there are two, you know, when you refer to the to the word itself, you know, architecture is used in many contexts. Architecture is mostly about a set of relationships. You know, it's about orchestrating relationship in space. In space, you know, it's an extremely, as an extremely elastic definition. You can apply space in our three-dimensional environment, but you can use space to describe a book, uh, mm -hmm. to, to, to describe a political process, to describe a political assembly, uh, to describe a video game environment and so forth. So as long as, let's say, we have the um, 
tools or the intention, the ambition to actually orchestrate this, let's say, definition space that mm-hmm. falls into different kind of environments, I think an architect is always relevant in that sense. You know, <laughs> I, I very often I when I joined OMA, I remember I had a discussion with them about the power of cinema in terms of storytelling mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. you know fictionalization mm-hmm. and so forth. And he said, and he said something very powerful that really stick to me, and I think it really enforced my practice for the years after that. That basically cinema is about the orchestration of scenes, and that's why right. it's exactly a process that is, um, in its essence, very similar to what an architect does. An architect thinks in terms of an orchestration of spaces, which are stages for social interaction, and the way we intend social interactions today is very different because of course we have access to digital environments we have access to different kind of editorial projects we have access of course to different kind of physical spaces and so on but the i think the domain of the architect in that sense is really the design of that form of orchestration Um, and and that's why i think for example you know i come from italy italy is living a sort of construction crisis since 50 years architects don't build in Italy, mm. and they have not been building for a long time. That's why in the 60s and the 70s, they produced, um, Italian architectural culture produced the radicals, uh, collectives which were really involved in understanding architecture beyond its disciplinary boundaries, thinking about technology and media and communications and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, I never had the ambition, even as a student, to really go out there and design buildings Mm. but i had the ambition basically to use special approach um or to actually to specialize different kind of problems in different kind of environments and there i think an architect is always a kind of role now going back to your questions about institutional critique of course there is basically um relationship even when you think about you know in the most traditional sense about architecture I go back to the example of the Russian pavilion. The Russian pavilion basically um, in the past uh, uh, 30 or 40 years went through a process of, you might say, bunkering. In a way, it became this kind of extremely closed box, almost like a metaphor in a way of the inacceptability of the political system that you have in fact, or the opacity of it. Yeah. And what we're doing actually is to start from that opacity dismantling piece by piece, which means right. basically the building will act in a completely different way. It will be more porose, more connected to the fragile ecosystem of Venice and its environment, more connected to the outside of the biennial. And by doing that, through actual and physical architectural alterations, we are changing the way the institution that runs the pavilion can actually operate. So that's where really the point of interference is actually really through the project. But sometimes right. the same kind of project, I think, can be applied again to a digital environment, to a game, or to a an editorial, you know, effort. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I I agree with that completely, and I think I think you're exactly right. And I love that you brought up that quote from Rem when you when you first started at OMA, and mm-hmm. I was I was very interested in this idea of scenography and mm-hmm. and staging, which you seem to talk about a lot. And I think that 
at first glance seems very clear when you are curating an exhibition, when you are designing a, you know, a fashion show for Prada, uh, but perhaps is less clear on the more building architectural side. Uh, But that is also a way of kind of creating these stages, which then is, uh, you know, creating how an institution functions, the way the space itself is actually designed. And I think that doesn't have to be physical. Like you said, that can be a video, that can be a video game, a film, it could be an audio podcast like this. And I'm interested in where your interest in working across mediums uh, came from, because Mm. uh, I think obviously the pavilion is very uh, multimedia driven. Mm. I think uh, your work at OMA was very uh, multimedia driven, kind of working across scales in media. And I think OMA in general thinks about that. Um, and I saw that even before OMA, you were kind of working, designing video games and video clips and things like that. So you've yeah. always been kind of working this way. Yeah. Where did that come from? Uh, well, that's a big question. Um, well, uh, <laughs> Well, okay, uh, partially interest, you know, I've been a huge fan of uh, cinema and uh, moving images in general, um, Mm -hmm. long before I I entered architectural school. I entered architectural school almost by chance, in a way, uh, and at my time, uh, the kind of education that we would got in Milan, I studied in Milan and then in the Netherlands, uh, was very generalist. You know, Mm -hmm. I would be able to actually study architecture and disciplines related to architecture. But at the same time, I would be able also to engage with media and photography and so on. And I think that also was due to the fact that Milan as a scene has had a connection between um, different domains of visual cultures, which is ingrained in the culture that Milan developed in the 20th century. Think about, for example, what the Memphis group used to do or the designers that were working across scales between fashion, objects, architecture, and media. Uh, figures like Andrea Branzi or Lucio or, 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 um, or Ugo La Pietra, they were completely transdisciplinary. So I come from that culture. The city has an understanding of design which is absolutely multidimensional. Yeah, so that's one point. Right. And uh, it is true, before joining OMA, I worked for a multimedia company where we used to work for MTV, running video clips and animations and so on. So it's something that always had, had triggered my interest. Also, because I never thought, like I said, that, let's say, the market would have given me the opportunity to act <laughs> as an architect. And then I moved to the Netherlands and I sent this kind of letter to OMA and I said, look, this is what I do. <laughs> You know, yeah. are you interested in me? And and uh, and eventually, maybe it was the only large architecture yeah. office which had a corner fully dedicated to transmedia, transdisciplinary right. uh, kind of engagements, and that was AMO. So when I enter in two thousand, at the end of two thousand six, two thousand, at the beginning of two thousand seven, I enter in that domain, and that was my corner since then. Mm. I, I've always been kind of. Um, making the journey between a more traditional way of understanding architecture and practicing architecture and one which was definitely non-classical, non-traditional. Right, right. That's a, yeah, that's a nice way to, to yeah. put it. And I'm interested, I, I would like to talk about 
Ome and Ammo and um and perhaps how that has influenced your your new studio 2050 plus and kind of how you are thinking about your work now mm-hmm. i had i guess it was probably two years ago i had Rainier de graf mm-hmm. on the show mm-hmm. um shortly after his book came out and i asked him about how, like how he describes ammo and it, I, I don't mean to put down his answer. It was a good answer, but I'm still not totally clear <laughs> on, on what it is and how it relates to the larger umbrella of OMA. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And because and, and the reason I'm, I'm asking you that is because I think similar to, to Rainier, you also are someone who was kind of moving between them, like you said, in this kind of transdisciplinary space, but also in something that's a little bit more classical. How did you see that relationship? Well, you know, this is the most <laughs> difficult question you could ever ask. I know, I'm you know? Sorry, There is I'm no sorry. one who can define what AMO is, you know, because AMO... I think that's kind of the point. Too. That's exactly the point. So, uh, you know, um, um, I think AMO did something quite revolutionary when it was established because it was the first attempt to queer disciplines. Mm. You know, mm. something that is really happening right now that became almost mainstream mm. 15 years later. Yeah. It was done then for the first time, really querying disciplines, like acting across at the intersection of multiple kind of knowledge fields. Um, you know, like when you, first of all, there are multiple definitions of AMO because there have been multiple people working <laughs> with AMO. So my understanding right. of AMO is probably very different from the understanding of Rainier. And that's specifically yeah. because we belong to two, to two different generations. Right. Um, the way I've always seen, let's say, um, AMO was basically a way to set the agenda of the whole company, but not starting from the architectural opportunities provided by the market. So instead of right. being uh, passive to commissions coming to you, and of course that's very common for an architecture office of the size and status of OMA, you could actually say, okay, this is what's going on in the world. This is what is interesting for us to investigate. These are the disciplines we need to engage with to understand this phenomenon. And this is the way potentially these interests can become architectural projects. So um, I think the uh, you know and in 2010 I co-curated Chrono Chaos with them, right? And Chrono Chaos was a maybe a good example of this attitude, because it was the moment in which OMA almost officially engaged into and systematically engaged in preservation projects. But because before doing that, we had to basically build our speculative position about preservation in general as a kind of a political and cultural phenomenon. And the same thing happened with countryside now. Uh, and, right. uh, and there will be projects, actual projects coming out of that. So AMO for me has been a way to set a precise research and intellectual agenda within the office. And in a much smaller scale and maybe exploring more formats and more media that's what i'm trying to do now in my new agency yeah I, and that's that kind of intersection or or separation is is what's really interesting to me both i mean oma and ammo have had a profound influence on the way i think about my practice as a, as a graphic designer um and 
and you in an interview talking about 2050 plus described this intersection also and you said that you see uh the new agency as um i'm going to quote back something that, that you said um the separation between those that work primarily in a theoretical or speculative environment mm -hmm. and and remain kind of really niche because they can't enter the market and the studios that work exclusively on commercial projects the area in between hasn't been explored much and that's where your interest is and that's where my interest is Excellent. also <laughs> uh, um i you know as much as i would love to be primarily in, or to be 100 percent in the theoretical and speculative environment and not deal with the market uh that's just not financially or commercially possible or sustainable uh and i'm interested in how they influence each other mm -hmm. and how they talk to each other and could you talk a bit about that, about how the research agendas, how the theoretical or kind of speculative projects actually then influence the, uh, I don't want to say real no, projects, no, but, but you know I, what I mean? Of course, the, yeah. The, the commissions. Commercial yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Well, um, you know, um, things are not as linear as as they are when you actually <laughs> describe yeah. them or fictionalize them. But uh, to be completely clear, and, and um, I just give you an example that I think it's maybe a good way to explain this. Um, a couple of weeks back, we released a short film essay called Riders, Not Heroes, um, mm -hmm. that basically was looking at the condition of food delivery riders as essential workers during the lockdown in Milan. And he was looking basically at riders at the intersection between platform capitalism, jig labor, COVID-19, obviously, and the refugee crisis, because that plays a huge role in the way undocumented migrants are actually exploited by tech corporations in Italy, in Southern Europe. Uh, this project actually, is a project that is connected, in a way, to a project that Nike commissioned us um, mm. on Milan uh, on new forms of urban movement. So at one point, uh, Nike Milan came to us and said, you know, we really need to understand what is the future of sport here and whether we can use sport even as a word in the future, mm. you know how competitiveness has changed, what are the new, who are the new movers across the city? And, and then I told them, you know, like the, the point is to look beyond the definition of sports, but also to look beyond the definition of athletics. You have to look for people who move across the city because of other reasons. People who are actually a conundrum of other problematics or issues or transformations. So we made a sort of map of the main trends of Milan, so changing uh, population, aging population, pollution, climate change, uh, the plans that the city is actually taking against this kind of phenomenon. And we sort of found movers that would be able to embody those transformations. So riders were once, obviously, for mm -hmm. the riders, and they are, in many cases, athletes by all definitions. Um, people who actually, you know, ride their bike for 100 kilometers every day. So it's, 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 it's a huge and enormous, uh, you know, bodily effort. But also we look for this community that is called Arbonauts, who are people who uh, practice as a sport the climbing of trees. 
okay. yeah, and it's very beautiful because now they are used by the city to maintain the monumental trees in the city. And this is interesting mm. in a city like Milan that has a very negative projection in terms of climate change. So in, by 2050, Milan should have plus four degrees. And the city has launched this plan of planting three million trees by then. So to look at the Arbonaut seems to look at the right community to actually understand this phenomenon. So we try to basically, you know, match city dynamics with new movers. And somehow this conversation with Nike was really positive and it started actually from the conversation on the riders. So that's mm-hmm. a kind of example of how the two things have suddenly aligned, a more speculative dimension. We did that movie just for research intentions. Uh, it was right. connected obviously to something that I do at the Royal College of Arts uh, in terms of research uh, in my studio, but uh, it, it became almost um, naturally a project that a company that is trying to look critically at itself wanted to initiate. That's interesting to me for a couple reasons. I'm going to try to try to form a question out of a bunch of stuff that you just said that I'm not totally sure I can articulate um, because I, I want to connect a couple things that that you've said throughout this conversation. You know, earlier you mentioned um, even when you were studying architecture, you weren't sure you had a kind of strong desire to actually build. And I am someone who is kind of constantly thinking about terms and titles uh, and <laughs> you know, what can we call design? What can we call Mm. architecture? Can this be design? Can this be architecture? And, you know, I'm looking at the, the now online version of the Russian pavilion and I'm thinking, sure, this is architecture, but also this is graphic design. Are those the same? How how do those start to talk to each other? And it's interesting hearing that with the Nike project, thinking about, well, what is sport? What is movement? How do these things kind of fit together? Do you have thoughts on, I, I guess, you know, these terms, these kind of disciplinary boundaries now, do you think, does it matter? Or do you even think about whether something is architecture or not? Is it all architecture? Does that even matter how we define it? What do you think about all this? Because you're someone who's kind of, you know, all over the place, you're making films and exhibitions and buildings. (laughs) Is that all the same for you? Uh, No, it's not the same. But I, I do, I do have a very expansive notion of architecture. Um, so maybe I don't have a disciplinary notion of, of architecture. It's, it's a really good question. And I, uh, you know, I don't want to be limited by definitions. That's, that's yeah, my, right. that's my main problem. I had this problem all my life, all my life, uh, <laughs> you know, like, and, and then people try to put you in a place and then they, then they realize actually that's not really the right place. Then they put you into another place and then they realize actually that's not really the right place where it should be. And, and. And somehow I had found my dimension in this kind of in-between spaces. You know, right. before I was mentioned, I, I said, okay, it's true that I work for AMO, but it, for a long time. But at one point, we were able to create a corner in the office that was actually really sitting between AMO and OMA, between mm. the built and the unbuilt. It was not. It, it was neither one. That was my corner, in a way. Um, and 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 I know that that sounds a little bit uh, strange, but um, I I I do think that through architectural thinking, you can actually um, project a certain 
certain framework, a certain approach into many fields. I mean, the project of Nike is a project on the city, essentially, mm-hmm. and how the city is basically changing under these dynamics and how movement is actually being affected by these dynamics. You can call it sport. I don't know. You can call it city transformation. I don't know. I think things are then at one point self-evident. And I, I do understand the people that work a lot with language normally tend to give uh, definitions that actually are really important to clarify what is the ambition of a project or what is the ambition of an editorial um, program and so forth. But to me, um, that's really a, um, I don't want to say secondary, but it comes a little bit after, in a way. What I'm interested in is to build narratives. You know, I right. want to create stories. The way I do stories, it's through the, a certain understanding of space. Then if this, if this basically materializes in uh, an online editorial project, a video game or a movie, it's really a consequence of the story that I want to say, that I want to tell. Right. Yeah. No, I love that. I think that's a great, uh, that's a great way to think about because I've often thought about um, as a designer that, that my primary interest is not, is in the form of the content itself, um, not in whether it's, you know, typographic or whatever Absolutely. we could have defined. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. I think that's, that's, it's almost like a modernist way of see things. And that's, to me, um, not any longer, um, I don't want to say relevant, but efficient. We need more complexity yeah. to basically tell this crazy world we are living in, you know, this, this yeah. you know, I don't know if you, uh, if you had the chance to look at the uh, Let's Play event of the movie, uh, Let's Play event video. Yeah, yeah. At one point, this geographer who is in conversation with the game designer says something that for me is hilarious because he says, ah, well, we are in the Russian pavilion and then the Giardini are dominated by crazy bots and crazy robots and there is a virus and there is a nuclear bomb outside of the pavilion. Well, it's actually real, right. like real life, you know? Right. <laughs> so. How do you tell that? How, how can you basically simplify a condition that is so so insanely layered and and, and the complex? So I think we we I think there is on one side there are the, there is a need to define things, and on the other side there is a need to actually explain processes which are too quick and too complex to be actually defined to fall right. under certain uh, definitions. Can can I ask you that same question from kind of another sure. angle? Because you mentioned your research with the Royal College of Art, and, yeah. and you've you've taught you know for almost as long as you've been kind of practicing, kind of in parallel. It seems like how does teaching fit into that, and how do these ideas or in these kind of um, you know these things we're talking about of kind of rethinking these definitions or that these definitions don't even matter? Uh, how does that translate in the classroom for you and in the kind of research that you're doing with students? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. I mean, there is there is really a, a sort of osmotic kind of uh, relationship between practice and, and research and or pedagogy, uh, you might say. Um, I mean, the fact is I teach now at the Royal College of Arts and the Royal College of Arts is an extremely experimental school under uh, many perspectives. Architecture is embedded within multiple other departments, fashion, ceramics, media, and so on. So it's it's sort of 
they all feed into each other. So we have sometimes an art. Sometimes we have uh, we are not really able to, uh, you know, again to define architectural the project that our students uh, develop because they are not under classic definitions. Um, but but um, I, I mean there is there is always a connection. Uh, um, the studio that we run uh, in. Uh, uh, the studio that we run at the Royal College of Arts is called Data Matter. So it looks basically at the connection between data and the physical world, how the two domains are entangled, and from a material perspective, but also through from a political or, in the case of the movie uh, about the writers, from a labor perspective, you know. So, and those are some of the topics that are really crucial in our understanding and uh, research methodology at the Royal College of Arts, and they somehow spill out very often into practice. I must say that in the last year, the college for me has been really an engine of research and investigation. Um, And I try to, um, in a way, uh, bring a lot of the things that I do at college into actual practice whenever I could, even in the way that we sort of generate output about our projects, what kind of media we we use, we have an enormous and incredible access to extremely sophisticated softwares at college, robotics departments, and so on. So that is something that is, in a way, shaping a new kind of architects. And um, in a way, the studio is really our, sorry, our agency is really, um, getting a lot of yeah i mean um it, it, it's getting in a way richer by keeping this connection alive uh, you know like many things have changed you, you said before i've been teaching in parallel in many in different universities and somehow things have changed a lot and they are changing much faster in the past in the past years you know like for example like when i was working on manifesta uh manifesta had of course a lot to do with you know um maybe with topics and things which are connected to the uh to the revolution of the anthropocene and what that really led uh in 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 our in the way that we teach at school is the explosion of the scale of references you know before like until a few years ago architects would think in architectural scales from one to one to one to ten thousand, one hundred thousand maybe, but those was the range. Those were in a way the range. Now, uh, in a way, we we look from chemical reactions to planetary systems, and in order and that's crazy and yeah. it's schizophrenic. Yeah. But in order to do that, we need to rely on conversations with other experts, with other disciplines, all the time, all the time, and find our role in those new in in those kind of new domains. And that makes this moment super, super exciting. I think there are really a lot of opportunities because of those conversations. That actually, that leads into my, my kind of final two questions that I use to end all of these, these conversations. I'm, I'm curious what you're thinking about now. What's next for you? What's next for the agency? What are the, the kind of research topics that are getting you really excited right now? Well, I mean, we, as a, as a sort of an agenda, um, we decided to work within this, let's say, um, let's say at the, at the, 
um, at the intersection between uh, technology, politics, design, of course, and environmental practices. And mm-hmm. what we are trying to understand basically is, um, most importantly, how uh, you know anything that. Um, I mean, yeah, I didn't explain this well actually, but um, we are trying to position ourselves always within these four kind of domains, mm-hmm. and somehow this it's important both for our research project but also for our let's call them commercial project and that means basically that when we do speculative projects we have the freedom to investigate these four domains or their connections of course the way we want we curate ourselves and we curate the projects but it's extremely interesting how the conversation with clients are actually going once we bring up this topics mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it seems that for example a lot of the projects that we're starting now will be developed through this filter so even if they're commercial even if they are coming from completely different domains for completely other reasons somehow this kind of attitude is or this kind of domains it almost works like a filter so that we can understand or frame our project whether they are architectural or non-architectural through these areas of interest and that's the way we're trying to curate the agency in general so that we have freedom with the college, with our academic uh, collaborations or with our research projects to really investigate freely these topics, but also to bring them and to use them as a filter to, in, let's say, to um, approach more commercial work. Right. So the, the, the research or speculative projects end up guiding a lot. what commercial projects a lot. you decide I mean, to take of on. Course. Yeah. And I mean, obviously with all the compromises that a commercial project entails, I mean, we know that, you right. know that it's nothing new, but at least we have something that we can uh, discuss really at the beginning of the process that we yeah. somehow are able to master, to present, to narrate to our potential clients. And in a way we are funding probably because of the moment, because I mean, obviously, you know, uh, I think we are actually facing a super exciting uh, phase um, because a lot of, let's say, let's call them commercial clients, are realizing that many things have to change. And many things have right. to change with a different kind of uh, awareness about environmental issues, about technology, about politics, and about design. <laughs> and design right. is actually able to tie all these things up for us. Yeah. Yeah, I um I uh, I interviewed a couple months ago Winka Doubledom, mm. who's the the uh, chair of the architecture program at Penn. Yeah, and she defi- I asked her a similar question that I asked you about kind of like how you define architecture, how you kind of define your practice, and she said um, that for her, architecture is just everything that she's interested in, <laughs> uh, which I've kind of borrowed for my definition of design. And, and I think you're exactly right. It's like this, <laughs> this glue that can tie everything together. Hmm. But, uh, you know, like at, at one point also really like thinking about, I don't know, the next generation of architects or whatever you want to call it. For example, for me, the, the definition of, of architect is extremely limited and uh, somehow similar to to other cases other friends we like to maybe refer to ourselves more broadly as special practitioners 
mm-hmm. which has a much more elastic kind of uh, definition, if you wish. And in the same way that we really discuss with our students, I mean, what we want to do, and maybe that's also where the agency is really going, is to be able to sit at those tables where architects normally are not present. Right. You know, like right. uh, where you can bring your perspectives about, uh, you know, about in, in certain fields where normally you're simply not present because your role is taken by either engineers or scientists or sometimes policymakers and so on. So the point is to acquire enough transdisciplinary knowledge and attitude, not to lead a process, but to shape it together with other people. And that's exactly the key point that we are trying to develop both in the agency, but also in uh, at school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that I think that's exactly right. Uh, my last question, this is the question that I used to end all of these conversations. I'm would just like to know what you're reading right now. Oh, wow. That's really good. So the last book that I read is um, Oval. I don't know if you know it. It's by Elvian Wilk. It's, it's, I don't know this. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice... Um, um, it's a nice uh, um, book that takes in consideration, uh, let's say, the climate crisis and real estate um, and multiple forces which are now overlapping moment um and uh but through fiction you know it's Mm. not really it's not really um how would you want to say it uh it's not too speculative it's just a nice book to read in a way so that's the book that i'm reading now and then uh, the book that i read just before this one i think it's um ah yeah it's a classic one it's beat rot by douglas kapland Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I, oh, I've been read. I, that's been on my list for years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll have to. I'll have to add both those and that other one that you mentioned. I, I I'm not familiar with, but sounds very interesting. Yeah. Um, that's great, Ipo. This was such an interesting conversation for me. I really like the way that you think about these things and the way you think about your work. I'm a fan. Um, thank you so much for, for being on the show. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, Jared. And uh, it was really nice to talk to you. And also very nice conversational. Very nice. Thank you. It's been very, <laughs> you've been very welcoming, so to say. This episode was recorded on July 17th, 2020. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>